I'm going to move forward with the assumption that you all might welcome some content that isn't related to COVID-19. I obviously don't want to give the impression that this isn't a big deal, but I don't have that much to add to the conversation, and I imagine you all might like to hear about something else for a bit. I hope the music breaks continue to offer space to breathe and opportunities for mindfulness. Please continue to care for yourself and those around you, and continue to heed the advice of the public health professionals in your area. You know, some might say, and I I go back and forth myself, but some might say that existential exploration is for the privileged. As in, where our most basic needs are threatened, we will tend to focus on those. Many people are moving through their lives just trying to meet those basic needs and don't have time to pick at their wounds. They're just trying to get them to stop bleeding. I think that's a worthwhile critique to carry with us. On one hand, that makes a lot of sense right now, given the state of the world. But on the other, I think our response to a threat on our most basic needs depends greatly on our worldview and our perception of the divine. I know you think I'm talking about the state of the world right now, but I'm not. I'm actually talking about the readings this week. If you remember, last week, one of the readings was Israel wondering if they would have been better off staying in captivity in Egypt. Why? Because their needs were threatened. They needed food and water, and they were willing to give up their growth or freedom to get it. Isn't it the same with us? How about this example? We finally grow beyond the idea that thunder is just God stomping around in heaven because he's so mad at us. And yes, I use the word he in that case to describe God as sort of a symbol of regression. But anyway, we finally grow beyond this idea of God being furious with us. And then a global pandemic hits. And so we glad, sadly gaze out our windows at the pasture of sheep we're going to have to slaughter to repent and stop this punishment from happening. I believe something I can confidently say is, growth feels wonderful until an obstacle steps in the way, which will almost certainly happen. And at that point, shame has a way of sending us back to the beginning. Consider the metaphor of a greenhouse. Some crucial growth happens in a greenhouse. But, in theory, a tree can only grow so far in a greenhouse. It has unbelievable strength to reach up in the direction of the sun, but then it hits the ceiling and begins to curve back down toward the floor. But the greenhouse keeps the tree safe from the wind and the rain and temperature. Sure which can be good before the tree is strong enough, but at some point, the plant has to move outside. What I'm saying is, some churches are greenhouses. I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Liturgy.
postmodern liturgy exists in a couple different forms. Normally, this podcast is a chance to reflect on the weekly readings in the liturgical calendar, the week before they actually occur. So this podcast usually comes out on Mondays and uses the readings for the following Sunday. Our distinctive is that we try to apply a variety of postmodern lenses to the text, especially offering space for deconstruction and doubt. I also write and record all the music specifically for this podcast. You can engage in more material at postmodernliturgy.com. You can follow us on social media. That's at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. And if you're so inclined, you can join our wonderful group of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. As I mentioned last week, I have temporarily adjusted the format of the podcast because many churches, at least in my country, aren't gathering right now. So for the time being, I'm publishing on Sundays, and I'm using the readings for today instead of a week ahead. In this season of Lent, we've been dealing with the issue of shame. We took a break from that last week, but we're back on it this week. And we begin our return by going to the readings for today, March 22nd, the fourth Sunday in Lent. First Samuel chapter 16 verses 1 through 13. Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have prov- provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And Yahweh said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what Yahweh commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely Yahweh's anointed is now before Yahweh. But Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For Yahweh does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab 
and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has Yahweh chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has Yahweh chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, Yahweh has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Yahweh said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. Psalm 23 Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. God makes me lie down in green pastures. God leads me beside still waters. God restores my soul. God leads me in right paths for God's name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh my whole life long. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention 
what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes. Then I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. 
But we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know from where he comes. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners but he does listen to the one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I might believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, We see, your sin remains. People often like to say that when Jesus comes on the scene, everything gets flipped on its head. But that's what I actually love about the passage in Exodus. It is quite clearly flipping things upside down. Saul is actually fairly king-like, but in the end, after the choice picks in David's family are passed over, David is selected. There's actually something quite interesting we found out in this passage. God regrets and actually repents for having chosen Saul. Not only that, but God actually grieves over the original choice. So, you know, 
God doesn't ever change. That is, except for when God changes. Now, I think I know what people mean when they say God is unchanging. I hope what they mean is God is always love. But perhaps we should be careful about using the phrase God never changes. Because, in a manner of speaking, God certainly changes here. But who knows, maybe Saul was full of Davidic-type potential at the beginning and it just didn't work out. Maybe a different type of king was needed at the beginning, but he grew unjust and a change needed to be made. No matter what, God has now chosen the one who appears to be the weakest, the runt of the litter. There's no justification needed here. This is the direction of the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't turn everything upside down. Perhaps Jesus offered a more fully developed understanding of it, but the kingdom of God has been upside down from the very beginning. The passage in Ephesians is one of those passages that can be quite shame-inducing, especially with the imagery of light and dark. It's really helpful if we don't look at light and dark as different spheres of existence. There are not, quote, dark people and, quote, light people. And for the record, we should ditch this understanding for the racial implications alone. Not only is dark equals bad and light equals good not really the most helpful way of looking at this passage, it also colors our worldview. The description of someone awaking shows the real purpose of this language of dark and light. It is a revealing. It's not so much about tap dancing between different spheres, but rather an evolved understanding. What's more is that this language is more generational than individual. Let me give you an example. At a certain point, the Industrial Revolution seemed like a flawless idea. But the harmful effects of it have been and are being revealed to us. The point of this passage is, move forward. The light has revealed a corner of darkness to us, and now that we know, we must respond. The focus isn't placed on wallowing in the darkness. In fact, as it encounters the light, the darkness disappears. Now it's just a matter of moving ahead with what we can now see. I suppose you could ignore what the light has revealed, or go back to sleep. But you can't really unsee what you have seen. The real barrier to growth would seem to be when someone comes along and tries to block the light by saying, let's go back to the way things used to be. We used to have it so good. Or, I don't know, maybe make the lightness dark again? This happens to us all the time. It happens in politics, it happens in previous relationships, and I'm convinced it happens in certain church communities. Sometimes I wonder if churches are actually seeking growth. I know it's a part of the vocabulary, but I'm not sure it's a part of the practice. Or if it is, it's in the greenhouse sort of way I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Growth within a strict set of boundaries. For the record, I don't necessarily have a problem with boundaries other than the fact that I like to test them. But why would one need to put a boundary on growth? Oftentimes, the way the church seems to view this principle 
is actually as if they want to leave us all as babies. Not literal babies, but rebirth babies. They push people toward rebirth, and then they try and do everything they can to keep us in that state. Presumably, presumably because there is some level of purity with the moment after one is reborn. So don't you dare move, because you might mess up your status. And then what? You just need to be reborn again. What many of the Lenten readings and this week's readings seem to tell us is that growth is good. Wilderness is good. Movement is good. And perhaps most importantly, mistakes do not require a regression to a less evolved level of consciousness. That's not possible anyway, so why try? Moving a toddler out of a baby crib can be somewhat dangerous. They're probably going to fall at some point. When they fall, you don't shove them back in the baby crib. They learn. Here's another example. I grew up in the heyday of purity culture. And while I don't want to get into all that nonsense, I find something quite interesting as it relates to this discussion. For anyone who is no longer a virgin, the heavy emphasis was on reclaiming one's virginity. Well, speaking literally, the truth is they couldn't, and perhaps the most harmful outcome was that instead of allowing people's experience to move them to develop their own sexual ethic, it was suggested that they should regress, or put even more simply, just pretend it never happened. So with this theme of limiting growth in mind, let's move to the gospel reading this week. The man born blind is an often cited passage by many pastors, probably because it's jam-packed with theological distinctions. I want to quickly explore it through the context of all the readings this week, and even more specifically in the context of what I've been talking about. So I'll probably end up skipping some of the most obvious gold nuggets. I'd like to first point out the insanely important point that Jesus clears up. This man is not, as many in the story assume, blind because of some sort of generational sin. It's worth noting that this idea of generational sin was quite common for much of the Bible. Jesus flips that over, and although one might be able to say this was just one individual story, I'll say the authors and editors of the Bible chose which stories to tell for a reason. Furthermore, after Jesus removes the idea of generational sin, he says it was instead for the glory of God. Now, I'll address this more in a second, but I would like to say right now, once the context of the story becomes clear, it's unfair to say that God randomly selects people to be blind in order to show God's power. That's not what Jesus means. Secondly, the reason Jesus is in the most trouble in this story is because he's working on the Sabbath. And his work is quite relevant to my annoying point I keep making on this podcast. What work is Jesus doing? The work of creation. Mixing saliva with dust. At this point, I could probably leave you with, hmm. This story is almost exactly an allegorical example of what the passage in Ephesians was talking about. Seeing new things. Light shining where it has been dark before. 
Even Jesus talking about the glory of God should be understood through this framework. Jesus isn't talking about power. Jesus is talking about revealed truth, an evolving understanding about what we see when we see God. But the point I find most interesting in light of the topic this week is actually the background of this story. Several scholars suggest that this story mimics the experience of the Johannine community. You see, at the time of authorship, the Johannine community was sort of being shunned by other Christian communities of the time. One could say they just looked at the whole thing differently than everyone else. This is actually pretty obvious when you compare the fourth gospel with the other three. It is markedly different. In many ways, it's far less Jewish. In other words, a great way to think of this story is the blind man and Jesus equal the Johannine community and the Pharisees equal what could have very well been the dominant Christian culture of the time. Although it's pretty odd to say dominant culture when referring to late first century Christianity. So let's take the metaphor one step further. If you enjoy this podcast, then there's a chance you're like me. You existed within the dominant Christian culture at one point, but you began to question and deconstruct the whole thing. That doesn't mean you left it all behind, but you aren't who you were. Some might say you no longer fit inside the dominant Christian community. I might say, you have seen the light. Some might say you're blind to the truth. I might say, you're actually seeing much more clearly. See, there are most certainly still Pharisees. And just as the Pharisees mentioned here were actually very committed leaders in the religious system to which Jesus belonged, all of our modern-day Pharisees are actually Christians. What the Gospel reading is telling us this week, along with the other readings, is to resist what can become the regular practice of Lent, to give up and regress. If you haven't experienced it yet, there will be times of temptation to just shut up and fall back in line. You were so much purer when you were a reborn baby. But there's just one problem. Repentance is not a regression. It's actually moving forward toward new life. For our prayer this week, I'd like to suggest a journaling exercise. 
We have become accustomed to the idea that repentance is an act of apology. And while it usually involves something like that, I've become convinced that it is the less important part of self-examination. The far more important part is where to go from there. I'd like to point out again that I'm not a mental health professional, but I'm pretty sure that one of the best shame-avoiding practices is avoiding regression. Regression is where guilt is tempted to turn to shame. Because in some ways, shame is the circular motion between apology and regression. So I'd like us to develop a practice which can help us be more thoughtful about what we do with mistakes. Now bear in mind, when I say mistakes, I mean that we should start in a completely self-evaluating sense where you, and not me, not anyone else, consider something a mistake. So on a piece of paper, make three columns. At the top of column one, write regression. At the top of column two, write mistake. And at the top of column three, write growth. If something has initiated guilt in you, write it in the center column. Especially write it down if it's something that has bothered you more than once. Then, write the outcomes on either side of the behavior. The only rule is, you cannot write the same thing in the regression column that you wrote in the mistake column, and you cannot write the exact opposite of the mistake in the growth column. To return to the purity example, you cannot simultaneously write sex in the mistake column, sex in the regression column, and don't have sex in the growth column. Hopefully this practice will provide some shame resilience and allow us to be more thoughtful as we move toward growth. Remember, repentance is not regression. That does it for this week's episode. And actually, that's it for the Lent series on postmodern liturgy because I'm taking next week off to prepare for some extra stuff on Holy Week, including an episode on God is Dead Day, Black Saturday. In the meantime, I'd love if you would join us online. We are at 
postmodernliturgy.com. We are at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. Finally, I'd love it if you would consider supporting our work for free by sharing and rating and reviewing the podcast or financially at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. If you visit our Patreon site, you can see several great benefits for our supporters. Thanks again for joining me. I'll be back on Palm Sunday. And enjoy the tension.